And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. This episode was supposed to be last week's, but as you know, I'm writing an ongoing editorial horror series for Dread Central, and uh, I wanted to talk more. Uh, I was so moved by what I was writing about the importance of, of horror magazines and their resources to filmmakers that I thought I would just switch things up. This week's episode is on how I avoided my own podcast, Cinema, how I avoided cinema on my latest film, The Special, which is presently in release on Amazon Prime and everywhere uh, from Blue Fox Entertainment and Red Hound Films. It's also international through Devil Works. So you can find it pretty much all over the world right now, and it's done extremely well. And there's a reason why it's done well, and that is we took the film seriously, and we also took care to make sure that we delivered our audience something great. Cinema, by definition, uh, my cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, by definition, is the ability to do something great and making the conscious choice not to do something great and just give the audience garbage. And that's why Jaws the Revenge inspired this podcast. Jaws the Revenge is the epitome of cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. I have to keep saying that because you're going to think, well, wait a minute, yeah, it is cinema. It's a movie. I don't think Jaws the Revenge is a movie. And if you go back to episode two, I fully support that. And that's not what this podcast is about. In reading Fangoria as a boy, and I can't remember if it was on a Halloween episode or article or if it was on The Thing when they were making The Thing, because Fangoria was the first magazine that I ever subscribed to. John Carpenter was giving an interview, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he had said in this interview that when you go out to make movies, you find great people, both in front and behind the camera, and you hang on to them for life. And I listened to George Romero echo very similar sentiments. Larry Cohen, Frank Henenlotter. They all say basically the same thing because when you're making an independent film, and for those of you that are the independent filmmakers listening to this, you know what it's like to get this crew. You know what it's like to get actors that aren't just going to clock time, but that are going to give you a great performance. I'm going to get into that, especially when we get to Sarah French as well, too, and and Davey. Uh, the stars of the special. So you find these great people and you hang on to them. And most of all, as a filmmaker, you always try to pay your people the best that you can, even if it means you are not always paid the best. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Look, I have worked on several films in my career where my cinematographers made more money than I have. And why? Because I chose these people because I know that their work is going to make my movie shine. So if I got to take 5,000 less or whatever it is uh, in pay scale to the cinematographer, well, then I'm going to do that if I have to. Look, we have all, we all have bills to pay. And uh, it's not like I can make a habit out of doing that all the time. But once in a while, you got to sit back and decide what's best, especially when you get good material and you want to bring that to the screen. So I got the special, before I get into the actors, how this all came about was I knew a special effects artist and graphic artist named Mark Kusabucky, known as Monster Mark. And you can find him on Twitter, at Monster Mark, or you can find him on Instagram and Facebook. He's everywhere. His graphic style is incredible. And his poster work is what attracted me to him when I was at Erie Film Festival for my first movie, The Fields. And he had a table set up and I saw his work. And of all the artists that were there, it was Mark's stuff that really stood out because he had such 
a great kind of 60s, 70s, and 80s vibe all together. And then I saw he was also a special effects artist specializing in practical makeup and practical effects. And uh, we hit it off. I loved his work. And I knew one day I'm going to work with you. I'm going to bring you in. So you're, you're building, you're constantly building your network and you never know where you're going to meet these great people. So I had, I uh, commissioned Mark uh, to do the poster for Six Degrees of Hell, which got great raves when I released it to the press. Uh, Six Degrees of Hell's uh, poster that Mark designed was a terrific 80s throwback. It's a dark blue uh, background with red lettering and, and just Google it online and you'll find it. It's uh, my star, Nicole Sinaglia. Uh, she's screaming with this ghostly image that's almost like a split image of her. I loved it. So Mark stayed with me. Uh, he ended up doing some effects for me for Zombie Killers. And it was right after Zombie Killers and just before Death House that Mark came to me with a script called The Special by a writer named Mark Steensland who has done some considerable work and a brilliant author. And Mark said, he's been wanting to make this uh, for whatever reasons came about as all of us filmmakers go through. Uh, it wasn't in the cards and Mark thought he would bring it to me and maybe I could get it done. I read the script. I talked to Mark Steensland. I felt that it was a great premise, but I felt that there wasn't enough there in the first draft that I read for a 90 minute movie. I thought it would make a great piece of an anthology they're like the first or last movie kind of thing it was it was brilliant and i loved it i loved the whole creep show factor to it tales from the dark side there's revenge there's there's all kinds of great stuff in here and uh, mark agreed and he uh, came back a little bit later with james newman attached as also a co-writer they they had turned it into a novella as well too you can read the special as the novella and he and James came back with a, a what I felt was a much more fleshed out script. And again, no commentary, no negative commentary on their writing. It was just, you know, you got to make this thing run 90 minutes. And that's just the way it was. It was business, not personal. And they they answered the call. They, they stood up and they got it. And um, so it was time to raise the money, which we did find the money. And that's where I want to get to next. And that is with a budget, you got to remember Low budget or indie films these days could be $30 million. That's considered low budget. I mean, when Godzilla versus Kong is costing probably $300 million, and that's what they're telling us. It's probably more, and that's not factoring in your marketing. Low budget now is $30 bucks. $5 million is extremely low budget. We weren't going to get $5 million for this. And so we ended up with, I can tell you this, the special was made for under $500,000. However, my cinematographer, my producers, my editor, uh, the cast, they made it seem like it's a $10 million movie. Watch the film and look at the quality and the beauty of the picture. I still hope that Blue Fox, if you're listening, will release a Blu-ray version of it because it will pop on Blu-ray, there is no doubt. So you have to assemble a cast out of this. You have a great story, you have some great screenwriters who are very, very willing uh, to you know, give you their all and, and allow you the creative freedom to get it done. And that's the other thing too with writers. This was the first time I had adapted somebody else's material that I did not write. So you have to be very careful with that because they too want the best for their script and to be made into the best movie possible, no matter what the budget. Neither men got rich off this film, 
But the goal was, is to make sure that I meet their expectations and I treat them fairly. And I assured them, this is their baby. I'm not going to ruin your script. I promise I will give you a good film. So the next step then would be is, is assembling a crew. And again, what Carpenter said, you find a good crew and you hang on to them for life. I was introduced uh, through a mutual friend to two gentlemen, Doug Henderson and Matt Neese. And they had a company in York, Pennsylvania, and it was called Bold Creative Media. And this mutual friend said, oh, you got to meet these guys. You live in the area. You know, you live around this area. They're close to Philly. Um, You got to meet them. And look, I'm going right against what Carpenter had said. My initial reaction was, oh yeah, sure, they're good. Everybody's a filmmaker these days. And some of you know what I'm talking about, especially those of you that are out there raising money and putting together crews and productions. Everybody with a prosumer camera or even a digital phone now, they think they're all a filmmaker and they're going to make some $5,000 movie and it's it's going to blow up into a $400 million franchise. And I'm here to tell you, no, it's not. And sometimes these kind of filmmakers ruin it for filmmakers like me because you go to an investor and they go, ah, if only you would have come to me a year ago. I, I put 50000 into this film. They never finished it. I lost my money. I've been burned. And then those people tell their friends. So it creates a chain reaction in losing financiers. And I'm sure some of you that are in this are nodding your heads right now going, that's happened to me. So these uh, pseudo filmmakers, as I call them, who promise the world, they come in and they say, if you give us $50,000, we are going to do this. And you know, Paranormal Activity was made for $5,000 or $15,000 and it made this. Those are con men. That's what they are. And sometimes they believe their own con. You're not going to have the next paranormal activity on a $15,000 film. It's not going to happen. And the reason why is because, again, as I have said, paranormal activity is one of the biggest myths of Hollywood. And what people don't realize is that Paramount bought into it, pumped about 2 to $4 million into this uh, film that they found, okay, the, the $15,000 film, uh, the original one, cleaned it all up, added visual effects, sound, the whole thing, made it look like a big screen movie, and then put a $50 million marketing campaign behind it. That's why it made $400 million. It didn't make it just because you made some clever $15,000 film. But I digress. So you find your financiers, but you need to find your right crew. And when I met Doug and Matt, first I looked them up and I looked at their stuff and I was like, I got to get these guys They're brilliant. Their portfolio was incredible. The work that they were doing, phenomenal. And I knew that these would be the guys to pull it off. So we met, we hit it off. I gave no unrealistic expectations. This is going to be a low budget film. None of us are going to get rich off this. And most of the money is going to go toward the effects because if the effects, and they're all going to be practical effects, if the effects aren't good, well, then we're in trouble because the whole movie is about the effects. So they agreed, they signed on, and I got two of the greatest people that I plan on hanging on to for life. So you, they, they have a crew that they work with. They brought in their people, people that they've worked with on previous productions that, that agreed, yeah, look, I have a day job, but I'm willing to do this for you. And see, that's what I mean. You find these great people and you all work together. So they assembled the crew. I had to help get the cast. 
And so one of the first people that I thought of in reading this story, and look, one of the negative reviews of the special said, all the special is, is about a guy fucking a box, a wooden box. And my answer is, yeah, that happens. But no, that's not the whole movie. And I'm sorry, that's all you got out of it. No, it's it's a story of addiction. And although, you know, you have the horror dick in a box kind of thing going on, the important thing was, is that Mark Steensland and James Newman wrote a very serious script. It is not satire. It is not dark horror comedy. There is some humor elements to it. Uh, that's all good horror has some humor to it. Uh, but we never once not take it seriously. And the first actor that came to mind to play the role of Jerry, the cheating husband, was a guy named Davey Raffaele. And Davey had worked for me on Six Degrees of Hell. He played a bit role as a serial killer in there. And the best part was, is I had met Davey or was exposed to him through a film called You'll Know My Name by a brilliant filmmaker and future Oscar winner, Joe Raffa. And in that movie, uh, Davey played a, a very nervous kind of a drug dealer and toady of, of the film's antagonist. And I loved his performance. He made me nervous watching him. So Davey came to Six Degrees of Hell, but he broke out in Camp Dread. And he played Vinny in my Camp Dread. And the audiences in the test screenings and the previews and all of that stuff loved him so much that even though you know he's going to die, so sorry, spoiler alert, they loved him and they all went, aww, when they saw that his death was being set up. And it was kind of funny. Davy came back in um, Zombie Killers and I knew that we needed Davy as Jerry in the special. So I brought the script to him and he read it and he got back to me in, in, in typical Davy fashion. Davy is a very funny guy, but when he's serious, he's very serious about his work. And the first question he asked me was, hey, Harrison, is this going to be played for laughs? And my response was, absolutely not. If we don't take the material seriously, then why should the audience? No, it will not be played for laughs because let's face it, Davey, as Jerry, is naked through probably a quarter of the film and has to look like he's sticking his penis into a glory hole in the front of this box. And he's got to play it straight. And that means on set. Some of you think about this. How do you do this? How do you go on a set sit on a bed on your knees, stick your dick through a hole in a box and look like you're having the orgasm of a lifetime and the sex of your dreams while you have a crew of lighting people, sound people, uh, on monitor, script supervisor and other actors all watching this. Now I did close the set, so I really shouldn't say other actors um, unless there was you know somebody involved in that exact scene. And I closed the set for nudity and such also on um, Camp Dread as well, too. So Davey was assured, we will take this seriously. And he was in. And what I love about Davey is that he has a Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins kind of quality about him. Davey, uh, I don't think the nudity bothered him so much because he's, he's extremely handsome and built very well. He's in great physical shape. So I don't think he was really too concerned or self-conscious about how he looked. It was just the silliness of banging this big box on the bed. I think that's probably what it was. Davey signed on and we started working with him. He loved the script. He was excited, but we needed a wife. Now here in independent filmmaking is another catch. Some of you think out there, and I've talked to filmmakers who think, well, you know, if we need nudity and we need a celebrity, maybe we can get both in one package 
and hire a porn star. Now, this is incredibly, it's going to sound misogynistic and it's going to sound incredibly hypocritical. Uh, Casting a porn star in your movie, unless it's some big, big budget movie and you have a Quentin Tarantino type of director that's doing this because of the art of it all and it won't sink his movie, casting a porn star in your low budget film is basically the kiss of death for distribution. Most distributors worth their salt will go, no thanks, not interested. Now, I'm not casting any type of judgment on the actress or the actor. I'm just pointing out that it is it is a deal breaker. And even though probably all these people watch porn and may even be a fan of that particular porn star, male or female, uh, they shy away from it. And you will get a bottom of the barrel distributor usually for your film and make no money. So stay away from casting porn stars, but don't go for the low hanging fruit and just hire an actress or an actor simply because they are willing to take their clothes off in front of people, because that doesn't mean they can act. So we had an actress, for example, we were in negotiations with, um, she was fantastic in the role, but she refused to do the nudity. And even when I compromised and said, well, okay, how about we do underwear and uh, we'll never see you naked. We'll imply nudity in the scene. Although the nudity is really important to the story. That's the catch. And the reason why I was talking to this girl is because she was local. She was in the Philly area. So this is a lot easier than flying somebody in from California. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm talking, I, it was weeks of going back and forth with this girl. And then we, she finally said, okay, I, I see what you mean. You could kind of imply it. And I, nobody sees me naked on, on screen because I have family in the area. And I, I really don't want them seeing that in the sex scene. And I said, fine. However, the catch is you're going to be in some state of nudity on set because this is a small budget film. We don't have mole skin or ways to hide your nudity. So you're going to have to feel comfortable being nude with our male stars. So before you think, oh, they just want to get the girl nude. No, Davey was nude too. And we had a closed set and I ban all cell phones on the set. And I also make it very clear no one cracks any kind of joke that could be any way construed as off color or offensive or awkward. And also all my crew, nobody approaches either nude actor, let alone touches them. I always keep a buffer of at least 10 feet in directing. There is no need to come in, invade the personal space or lay hands on. That's how I feel. And that's how I run my set. And this still was not good enough for her. She wasn't comfortable and that's fine. I'm, I'm not castigating her for not wanting to do it. But we have a movie to make too that calls for certain things and it was just becoming that we weren't going to be able to satisfy all of her concerns and most of all, what if we unintentionally do something that afterwards she felt uncomfortable about and and we didn't do anything. So we have to think of all of that. So it didn't work, although I loved her and I want to work with her again, uh, get her involved in something because she's a brilliant actress. It just wasn't going to work out for this film. I think that's fair enough to say. And she really tried, but I can't make somebody, I don't want somebody uncomfortable on my set. So the associate producer on this film is Felissa Rose, who also came to me um, when I searched her out to be a starring role in Camp Dread. And Felissa is a genius when it comes to finding cast in Hollywood. Felissa knows everyone. She is a walking Rolodex, especially in the horror department. 
And I contacted Felissa, who was helping associate produce this from across the country. And she said, oh, I can get you somebody. And she recommended Sarah French. And uh, Sarah, I had crossed paths with previously on Death House. She had a small role as Sid Haig's victim, the ice killer, uh, the icicle killer's uh, victim. And she was extremely pleasant to work with, a very attractive young lady. And uh, most of all, she can act. And uh, Felissa brought her to the table. Uh, we negotiated out a price. The issue, of course, is I got to fly her in, that that's an expense on your budget. But I felt because of time and getting things done, it was the best way to go. So we brought in Sarah French. Sarah handled herself wonderfully on set. She cared about the role. She asked a lot of questions. And in fact, she even contributed to creative ideas. And she was willing to do whatever was needed to make a great film. And I'll give you an example. First of all, with nudity, she's very comfortable in her own skin. She had no issue with nudity. And she had a great chemistry with Davey. They were professional and there were no issues on set whatsoever. She was a distinct pleasure to work with and she was comfortable. That's the really the main thing. It's not so much about ease or difficulty of working with someone. You want to make sure they're comfortable and that they're happy. And that afterwards, it was a positive experience. And it was for Sarah, and I think she would say that. There was a moment on set when I worried if we were not going dark enough in the special. The script was already dark, but were we really pushing the boundaries? Were we really trying to deliver a truly horrific movie? Now, the ending has a lot of stuff going on. I don't want to give away any of that because it all builds up to something that some people say they saw coming and others were like, no shit. And that's great. But up until that point, you have to think as both a director and both as a writer. And that is what happens when we finally know what's inside the box, when Jerry removes what's in the box out of the box. You've got to make sure that you keep your audience hooked because what you don't want is, oh, it's that. Okay, now I know the mystery of the box. I'm going to flick over to something else. Uh, I'm, I'm done. I, I saw it because I'm telling you, you haven't seen anything. The reveal of what's in the box is only part of the big surprises that come by the end of the movie. But I sat down with Sarah and Davey and Doug and Matt. And uh, during a lunch break, we had a kind of creative lunch powwow in which I brought up my concerns. I don't want a tepid horror film. And it was Sarah also that came forward and said, look, because I proposed a really, really super dark idea. And I was gun shy about this because I went really dark in Death House. And there is a 30 second scene in Death House that is truly disturbing. In fact, so disturbing that even the crew was kind of disturbed by it all. And uh, when it went to get raided by the Motion Picture Association of America, they made me cut it. And it's a real shame because it was great and added a lot to what Death House is. So I was worried for my investor because as a, as a director and a producer, you have to be very, very careful because you can get your way artistically, but is it going to sell commercially? And I can't handicap this movie to have distributors go, well, you know, really everything's great, but this. Now you could cut it, but then you're always like, ah, then it leaves. You always know it's like losing a tooth. Maybe you lost that tooth in the back of your head and people talking to you don't know, but you know. And that's why your tongue always goes to that hole where the tooth was. And that's how it is when you extract something out of a film that you put in and you were really proud of it, but you got to get rid of it. So it's kind of like that. 
And it was Sarah who thought about it because a lot of the onus would lie on her. And she said, Harrison, although I think the film is great and dark, the script is dark right as it is, and I think you're hitting all the proper notes, if this is what you need me to do, then I'm going to do it. And I couldn't believe it because it was asking a lot. And it was asking also a lot of Davey. And I looked over at Davey and Davey said, I'll do it too. But it was Doug and Matt. See, this is the give and take of finding good people who said, well, let us think about it. And they came back to me and they said, Harrison, you're already directing it right. And we already have a very creepy look. I didn't make the special to be scary. It's not going to terrify anybody. What you want is to make people think. And you want people to talk about it. And maybe it gets under their skin. You want it to maybe disturb and make people uncomfortable. But the special was not made to terrify. And that's where it was going to go. If we implemented my really dark thoughts into reality and Matt, who is behind the camera and seeing everything, seeing far more than even I'm seeing on that monitor, they said we were dark enough and that it was just the right balance and that we we can shoot it, but probably it's best if we don't include it. So my attitude was we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of money. I'm not going to waste people's time in doing this. And we just simply did not shoot the scene. Now, someday I'll I'll reveal what that scene was going to be. But when I have revealed it to some other filmmakers, they said, dude, you are absolutely right to not do that. Uh, It would have crippled us. And in fact, I did talk uh, just as an off the record thing to the distributor, uh, to Blue Fox. And uh, their agent over there said, yeah, you you did the right thing not shooting that at all. Um, It's best you didn't. So this is all part of it as the process, because in the end, you want to make the best movie possible. And that's why the special is not cinema. When I make a movie, and for all of you listening, I know it's going to sound like really lame and tropish and cliche. I'm making stuff for you. The goal is, yeah, you want to make a movie for yourself that you're proud of, but you got to remember, you're putting it out there for a lot of people to enjoy as well, too. And you don't want it to be one inside joke or one just single personal story because they're not in on it. I want all of you to enjoy my stories. And that's why the special brought in all these truly special people. I mean, we had Matt, our director of photography. We were working in seven degrees below zero. And Matt was out there filming those car scenes and those exteriors where we had we had freezing advisories on those nights. And my, my crew is out there doing it. They're lighting. They're doing the sound. My script supervisor, who I was terrified she was going to get really sick, we're all running it. And they're all doing it because they care. And that's what's so important and why this special is not cinema. And then when you go to the makeup effects, because I had said earlier, as I start to wind this down, the the number one place where the money was going to go were going to be the the, uh, special effects, the makeup effects. And Monster Mark came on board and he created the puppetry and and the mechanical puppets for what's in the box. And it wasn't just Mark because Mark gave everything. He came down. He has a wonderful, a lovely wife named Sherry. And Sherry comes down. She was our on-set nurse because she's a certified nurse. She's a registered nurse. And they are the nicest people. She baked brownies and cupcakes. And we, it was, I know it sounds really like kumbaya, but that's the best set to have because we all got along and we all liked working with each other 
And that's going to show on your screen. And it was Roy, uh, Roy Kinnearum out in uh, Los Angeles with Soda Special Effects who sent me one of his best texts, Cat Sowell, Cat Bernay Sowell. And Cat came on board as the makeup artist in charge of the set and they gave us great effects because Roy's answer always is this. And man, if you have an effects artist, a good one that says this to you every time you bring a project, my God, never let them go. Because Roy said to me on the phone, even before I told him the budget, he's like, Harrison, whatever you need, I'll make it work. I just love working with you. And I love working with Roy. We have laughs. I learned something from him and his crew, whether it's Matt or George or Kat or Jordan and all the people that make up soda. I just can't tell you the pleasure it is to work with these good people. So John Carpenter, if you are listening, I found my good people and I'm hanging on to them for life, just like you told me when I was a boy reading those magazines. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the special was all about. It's not a, this episode was not about a plot, you know, review and, and giving you the step-by-step blow-by-blow of every step of the filmmaking. The point is make your movie with the best people you can be positive and always treat people well. Directors, if you're listening, you come on that set and when you arrive and when you leave, you say good morning, you say good night to each person and you thank each person individually. I do not leave my sets until I have thanked everybody for all of their hard work personally. And in this day and age of COVID, yes, you still shake hands or you can fist bump, whatever is good, but you say good night and you say thank you. Those words go a long, long way. And that is why my movie, The Special, is truly special because I worked with special people from the beginning of this all the way through. And that also includes one last shout out to my visual effects guy, Joe Lawson of Lawson Digital Arts. Joe is another one. Harrison, whatever it is you need, we'll find a way to make it work. Now, the CGI in the special uh, is, is very limited. There isn't a lot. It was mostly to uh, clean up some things, remove some wires and some cables, things like that. All the effects, it's 95% practical. And you'll see if you watch the film. I highly recommend you check out my The Special and uh, let me know what you think of it. It's on Amazon Prime, it's on Vudu, it's everywhere, it's on DVD. Check it out and let me know. But most of all, find good people and hold on to them for life.